This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018 Season, Episode 4. Today we're talking about Darling and the Franks, Episode 4. Well guys, that's it! Hero got to pilot a Franks, kill the bad guy, save his friends, get the girl, and prove himself to the doubters. Wrap it up, this show is over. What's that? There's 20 more episodes. But so much was resolved. Just how much of the story are we missing? Well, we don't know what we don't know, but we've gotten further through our initial setup than I would have guessed by this point. My original speculation about the false impression we were getting about the overall story is now positioned to start coming true, potentially as soon as next episode. This is probably the end of the setup, so let's work our way through this episode, see what we know and where our characters are, as we potentially leave the introductory phase of this series. We begin with another bit of cryptic exposition from the Jedi Council. We find out that there is an escalation in the series-wide conflict of the Klaxosaur activity, and someone called the Nines is dealing with it. They ask, how long will they let Strelizia goof off? They don't ask how long Zero Two will goof off, but Strelizia, as though it was the Franks itself that was doing the goofing off. Interesting. The answer to that question, apparently, is now that the special specimen's aptitude has been ascertained, we have no reason to leave it there any longer. Here again, we have this talk of the special specimen. Looking at the three times it's come up in the series to this point, I would say either Hero is the special specimen, or some quality he contains is said specimen. This would answer our questions of why he got permission to stay, but I'll talk about that more at the end. For now, let's tentatively guess that it's Hero they are referring to. They go on to explain to each other, like they don't already know, that if they're recalling her, they will need to prepare a new stamen. Apparently that won't be a problem, because lots of parasites want to team up with her. This, even though she's supposed to be certain death. What is it specifically that is gained by partnering with her that is worth that risk? It does seem at least one of the ape council is a woman, so I'll stop referring to them as old men. Quick aside, but what if the ape council being covered up isn't because they're super old, like I guessed, but something else, like maybe some of them are non-human? Anyway, we gain tiny pieces of pieces of the puzzle from this, uh, but mostly this pre-credit scene begins the setup of the episode by sort of explaining the recall notice for Zero Two that will actually be what determines the narrative in the second half. The episode proper begins with Mitsuru having a bit of a psychological break due to his harrowing experience, calling Zero Two a demon and saying you'd have to be insane to ride with her. The other parasites are not surrounding him with an air of comfort or camaraderie, but instead huddle outside, kind of alarmed and confused, preferring to speak about him from a distance to being near him. With the exception of Fatoshi, that is, who can probably face any hardship as long as there's food involved, but he still avoids Mitsuru and talks about him, not to him. This is a bit of an encapsulation of their whole squad right now. Maybe it started when Hiro and Naomi failed, but this team seems like anything but a team since we've known them. The mixed reactions to Hiro staying on, the competitiveness between some of the members, the lack of loyalty to partners, Ichigo's emotional turmoil, and the near tragedy from their first sortie. This is not a squad I would bet on right now, and the emotional and literal distance they are maintaining from one of their own in Crisis both echoes and kind of highlights their dysfunction. But then, who breaks ranks and goes to talk to Mitsuru? Hiro, the biggest outsider in the squad. Is he really the linchpin to the entire group's cohesion? Does this foreshadow that his own breaking rank will eventually be what helps his squad uh, become a more functioning unit? We've had plenty of hints that he was a dynamic and obvious leader in the past, 
He should be one of the last people visiting the injured Mitsuru after the way he treated him, but here he is. And they've intentionally had the rest of the squad react with a nervous distancing of themselves. Hiro's not there to offer comfort, though. He's there to get answers. Asking after Zero Two, Mitsuru tells him, and us, that she tried to devour everything I have. My blood, my flesh, and my soul. He's convinced that she was out to kill him, but what's worse, she had a smile on her face. Evidently, she was smiling the entire time. And then, oddly enough, his next words are to warn Hiro, saying it'll happen to him too, and that he's out of his mind if he thinks he's the sole exception. Interestingly, once Mitsuru acts this aggressive way towards Hiro, the squad decides to actually enter the room. Fatoshi restrains him, Kokoro is nearby, being worried, and Ichigo decides to ask after Hiro's well-being, not the well-being of the injured and disturbed guy. We leave Mitsuru to convalesce, and Ichigo and Hiro talk about whether he still wants to pilot with Zero Two. Ichigo says that I just can't bring myself to trust her. You know, I also have a natural distrust of pink-haired girls who show an unusual interest in the main character, but I can't quite put my finger on why that is. Anyway, Ichigo brings up the rumor about how piloting with her three times could be fatal, and considering Mitsuru's condition and what he said, it doesn't seem like such an unreasonable rumor anymore. Now, I imagine people have been down on Ichigo a bit after some of her actions, and she definitely has extra cause to not love Zero Two, but really, trusting Zero Two doesn't seem like wisdom at this point. She's mysterious to us, the audience, and we actually know more about her than the parasites do. They just watched her injure their squad mate in a way that seems intentional, and Zero Two has been deliberately antagonistic to Ichigo. We're seeing from Hiro's point of view, but remember, no one else has been around for most of Zero Two's more humanizing moments. I said last time, if you subtract all the scenes she has with Hiro, she has a completely different characterization. Well, that's the characterization that Ichigo and the rest are actually familiar with. To relate pilot partnerships back to romantic partnerships for a second, Zero Two definitely comes off as a man-eater, a girl with some kind of allure or wildness or excitement that stokes guys' interest, but has no qualms about using, abusing, and ditching them. The kind of girl your buddy gets involved with that only brings him down, changes him, isolates him. You know he's headed for disaster, and you can't really save him from himself. You can only warn him off, but you do so at the risk of your own friendship. And maybe this is just what Ichigo is thinking when she gives him this look. And man, what a look. Anger, disbelief, worry, frustration, longing, it's all there. But as she says, she steals herself for what she anticipates will be hardship and pain uh, to someone she cares about. This is such a measure of respect and real friendship here, I think. It would be easy to resent Hiro, to turn her confused attraction into confused distaste. I said before that love and hate are not opposites. They are actually easy to convert back and forth. She doesn't do that, though. She says her piece, tells him that if his mind is made up, she won't stand in his way, and she starts preparing for the fallout that she fears. I know her motives aren't necessarily 100% pure here, but this is how a real friend behaves. People who will tell you things you don't want to hear, but they think you should hear. It's easy to ignore problems in people you just want to hang out with, because you care about the convenience of your friendship, your relationship, more than the true well-being of the other person. There's no reason to risk the former when you don't care that much about the latter. It takes someone who actually cares about you and your health to risk souring things between you with hard truths. If Ichigo is going to be speaking out against Zero Two at every turn, then maybe we could chalk that up to her envy and a need to compete. It would be a mark against her. By saying her piece and then telling him she's bowing out, I think we can believe the opposite, that she really has his best interests in mind. Next, we have a confrontation between Hachi and Nana in Zero Two. They are chastising her for her behavior in the previous battle, saying that she didn't need to use that much power to deal with those Klaxosaurs. While we assume this already, that she went all out for a reason other than necessity, the phrasing here gets me wondering. Saying she didn't need to use that much power, to me, implies a connection between how much power was used and how much damage her partner took. Which further makes me wonder, is some drawing out of another person's essence of health or something where the power in the Franks comes from? Is that the actual parasitic part of all this? Are Franks actually parasitic to humans? 
or maybe something more specific in humans, like their, their youth or their fertility or even their sexual energy, then all the piloting process being about maximizing sexuality might make sense. Even further, Zero Two is part Klaxosaur, and she seems to draw more out of her partners than most. Does that imply that the Franks have their own link to the Klaxosaurs? Well, I don't know. That does start me wondering, though. Anyway, Zero Two is unfazed by Nana's lecture and says she doesn't care about the place and then repeats what she said before about feeling suffocated. She also says that the rest are soon to die soon anyway, meaning the other parasites. And when chastised for this comment, she further says that those weaklings are only a nuisance, no matter how many there are. She'll go on to profess disbelief that they were chosen for their high aptitude, uh, but the thrust of all this is that she is really dismissive of the squad, and she's really callous about their fate. While I'm sure some of this is her being petulant because she's being scolded, uh, it's hard to doubt that this is near to the truth of how she feels about other pilots, maybe about other people in general. She's shown a pretty casual disregard for the health of her original partner and Mitsuru, and she antagonized Ichigo after realizing that Ichigo probably feels a certain way. Other than that, she's completely ignored the other parasites. Now, why she feels this way is probably buried in her past. But for the moment, I think the conclusion we can draw from this is that her volunteering to help out the squad was purely as a way to get to pilot with Hiro. It seemed like an excuse last time that she simply had to make good on without Hiro, but after these comments, I feel there's little doubt that she would be quite content to obey orders and stay out of it if Hiro wasn't around. Hachi attempts to counter Zero Two's dismissal of the squad, saying that they are an irregular squad, but were carefully chosen for their high aptitude. He says Zero Two only sees them as inferior because she herself is special. I do wonder if this exchange, if this means our squad really does have problems, like I pointed out a minute ago, or if this is normal for new parasite units. And maybe Zero Two is just so superlative that everyone else seems beneath notice. The real telling part of this, though, is how she reacts to the implication that she's special. And we don't know enough about Hachi to know if he's baiting her on purpose or not, but she immediately takes it as a comment about her non-humanness. Now he counters, with zero emotion, that he's talking about her abilities and nothing else. And I do feel like this seems like an oversensitive reaction on her part. Considering they were only talking about piloting aptitude, comparing hers to theirs as a the source of her dismissal makes more sense. The fact that she interprets it as a comment on her Klaxosaur blood either means that she is very sensitive to that subject, or she herself feels like she is different from all humans. And maybe somewhere along the way, that means she thinks her fate exists apart from theirs. The way her warmth towards Hero seems to come from her belief that he wasn't frightened by her horns suggests that on some level she craves acceptance from humans, but not getting it could easily have made her bitter towards humanity in general. This encounter ends with them informing her that her designs on Hero will likely not pan out anyway, because HQ has ordered that she return to the front lines. Knowing this ahead of time, before they actually come for her, may be what sets up the events of the second half to proceed the way they do. Either way, it gives us an in-episode conflict that may or may not be resolved by the end. Our next part begins with a little 20-second scene where Hiro is once again in the training unit, and he's ruminating over what he knows and remembers about Zero Two so far. He's taking everyone's warnings and her own behavior and kind of rolling it around in his mind. No decisions are made or anything, but we get to see that he has not been ignoring all the warning signs. He's taking the threat and people's statement on the one hand, and trying to compare it to the Zero Two that he knows on the other. As of right now, he doesn't have an answer. It's conflicted in his mind despite his confident assertion to Ichigo. As if to echo the debate in Hiro's mind, we then switch to the sitting room where the other parasites are discussing the wisdom or recklessness of Hiro piloting with Zero Two again. There's not a consensus among the group on Zero Two, despite the casualty in their ranks. Some believe he has to pilot with her if he wants to stay, some that he should go with her if she leaves, so at least he isn't alone, others that she's not like them, so he shouldn't consider piloting with her at all. Either way, it's one more bit of evidence that this squad is not a cohesive unit. They're, they're not a team. As if realizing this, Ichigo turns the conversation to the wider issue in their squad. It's easy to focus on Hiro's dilemma, much harder to look internally to their own. 
They're all doing things potentially dangerous to their health or lives. And Hero's situation isn't the only one that's not ideal. No one counters her on this. Everyone knows it's true. Now sure, we get a bit of a stock rally the troops bit here, but Ichigo again proves to be the self-aware one, and she owns up to her own failing when she's called on it. More interesting, I think, is that Ichigo means for this team idea to extend to Mitsuru, in spite of all of his non-team-like actions from last time. She wants him included, and that means Ikuno needs to include him, to back him up as his partner, as she puts it. Ikuno assents, though I don't know if it's without enthusiasm, or she's just naturally shy, or what. This is at least a bit of a change from the beginning, when they crowded outside Mitsuru's hospital room as though he was now on the outside of the group. The beginning of our kissing operation, as shown next, played over Zero Two examining Strelizia. Hiro encounters her unexpectedly and has flashbacks to injured pilots from past operations, causing him to suddenly hide from her. She notices this, but walks away, and he's left feeling a little silly, wondering to himself why he's hiding from her. But I know why. The debate inside his mind is still ongoing. He has not made up his mind about how he feels, so it's too soon to run back into her. Much better to hide out while he sorts it out in his mind. At least he won't accidentally run into her in the boy's bath. Ah, crap. So maybe it was Hachi's comments from earlier, or maybe it was Hiro ducking out in the hangar, but something has made Zero Two decide that she needs to know how he really feels about her and her horns and, and all that entails. This was actually done really well, I think, with her coming on strong, trying to entice him, and then putting her otherness, the horns, right where he couldn't ignore them. They drop the music out so we hear him swallow, and we know that she heard it too. She immediately changes her tone from tempter to accuser. She had thought him special, but now wants to know if he's just like everyone else, if he thinks of her as a monster. By his reaction though, I think this might be the first time he even considered her horns or her otherness as something that others would hold against her. He sees the threat of her, but only the way her partners fare. I'm not totally sure he had even made the leap that other people were seeing her that way. Even though Ichigo and Goro had both warned him about the wisdom of potting with her, neither of them made it about her Klaxosaur blood. You know, I kind of wish we had seen this play out, even though it might have gone poorly. The scene is an interesting mirror to their first meeting, where she was the one in the nude and he the intruder. In both cases, I feel like the most self-conscious person wasn't the one that was naked, though. I mean, Hiro is kind of beside himself and almost speechless in both scenes, but the one who feels insecure and vulnerable in this scene is actually Zero Two. She wants to know, she needs to know, how he feels about her. This might be the least confident moment we've seen from Zero Two during the whole series. It goes unresolved though, and the next part begins as the alarms sound over an approaching Klaxosaur. Mitsuru hears the warning and, despite his sorry state, he's already trying to get up and join the fight. Bravo! Ikuno has heeded Ichigo's advice, apparently, and is there as his partner. He refuses her help, the beating from Zero Two has not diminished his pride, it seems, but she steps in anyway when it's clear he needs it. Her comment here is pretty interesting, I think. You're such an awkward boy. You know, Ikuno may very well have grown up alongside Mitsuru as well. She may have known him back when he was the uncertain lad we saw at the beginning of last episode. Calling him awkward in such a long-suffering way really makes me think that a lot of the way Mitsuru behaves is just a front. The cool disdain and the distance he maintains, the theatrical gesticulating whenever he does decide to speak, uh, the indifference he's shown to his partner, and now the tough guy act when he's literally in a hospital bed. All of this seems like a giant mask he wears over his own insecurity. This makes me think Ikuno sees right through the mask. Maybe she's even watched him assemble it, piecemeal, over the years. Maybe she sees it as a phase, and the boy underneath is who she really considers her partner. We can't really say at this point. Either way, something about her partnership is valuable enough to her that she doesn't call it quits despite his recent antics. Once they are in the Franks, and he's telling her that he sure hopes she can connect this time, she assures him that she's fine, and for a moment she rests her hand on her left shoulder and smiles to herself. This is where his own hand was just before this, as she was helping support his weight. And while Mitsuru has given the audience no cause at all to care about him, it's clear he's given Ukuno some cause in the past. We'll just have to wait and see what it is. 
Characters in the series continue to be more complicated than they first appear. This resolved, the four Franks head towards the target, and Hero and Zero Two show up in the Situation Room fully suited up. Their confrontation in the bath doesn't seem to have changed either one of their minds about piloting together. Now we observed earlier that Zero Two probably doesn't care about the fate of the other parasites, so even though she's having some doubts about Hero, the only reason she would get suited up was in hopes of piloting with him. Now Nana interprets their intent and tells them it's not happening, and Zero Two does her best who me act, which is honestly kind of endearing compared to her usual reaction to Nana. Another transport plane lands and we see security forces disembark, and then we cut to our parasites actually engaging the Klaxosaur. Now right off the bat, I really like this fight scene. We get a new Klaxosaur design, this crazy drill-faced worm that I think much more closely resembles that weird biology-technology mashup uh, that we saw in the first episode. Then the squad executes a maneuver where Delphinium baits it down a canyon and the rest ambush it to stop it, and then they coordinate an attack at various points on its head. What I especially like about this was that it was clearly a planned strategy, but the show doesn't slow down to point that out. It doesn't say, hey, we're doing something strategic here. The action moves in real time, and they are relying on the audience to appreciate that there is some competence and some logic to their fight. Additionally, even though the thing stops moving after their original attack, this time they aren't overconfident. They know they've likely missed the core and need to set about finishing the job. They've taken the hard-won lessons from the first story to heart, it seems. No one's bragging, everyone's in serious mode. Unfortunately, they're still overmatched. Now Zero Two takes another stab at being deployed, to no avail, but she also hasn't failed to notice that a transport plane is docked. She seems unsurprised when the room is overrun with a security escort, and Nana breaks the news. Zero Two is returning to the front lines, and Hero is staying here. I think we can glean a lot about the threat Zero Two must represent to require being surrounded with guards. She's obviously done more than just be difficult in the past. As if to verify this, we get another demonstration of her physical prowess when someone lays a hand on her. She's mad. Probably more being taken away than being touched, and her clenched fist is literally shaking with rage. But despite this, despite what looks like an escalation of tension in the room, as soon as she speaks to Hiro, her tone changes. The contrast between her words and having the laser sights trained on her makes for such a great juxtaposition, as though between the aggressive and gentle sides of her, between the way others see her and the way Hiro sees her. She seems completely earnest as she expresses regret that their time is up. She says that she felt like things could work out with him, and that she wanted to be with him. And all the while, she keeps one hand longingly against the side of his face. Then she leans into him, poking him with her horns. Now, I confess, I spent a lot of time wondering about the significance of this. It's not humor, and neither of them reacts to it in a way that's very telling. Maybe it's a taste of the actual physical pain that being near her could mean for Hero? Maybe it's dispelling the mystery of the horns by making them mundane, normal, touchable. Whatever is meant, Hero is hurt, but not disgusted. He's not afraid, just confused. Whether Zero Two notices or not, I'm not sure. Whether she did it on purpose or not, I'm not sure. At the moment, she seems preoccupied with genuine sadness. But then she puts on a smile for him, gives a sad bye bye, and offers no further resistance. Once Hiro and Nana are alone, she immediately feels the need to tell Hiro that Papa ordered this. I don't know if that's so he knows it wasn't her doing, or if she wants him to know that it comes from too high up for even Zero Two to argue, or, or why. If Hiro doesn't care though, he begins asking Nana about the partner killer rumors. Nana's expression here seems to me to be a little bit pained. She's giving a factual answer that Zero Two is a special pistol who must keep fighting on the front lines for them, and how that takes a toll on her partners. But the way she looks, I wonder if some part of her is angry about that situation. Maybe some part of her hates Zero Two's fate or finds injustice in it. Maybe this is why she always tries to reason with Zero Two rather than being a little more confrontational. But maybe she is actually angered by the threat that Zero Two poses to her charges. As she goes on to tell him, keep this in mind. She's not like you normal children. 
When he wants to clarify if she means her non-humanness and Nana assents, Hiro now has the last piece he needs to deal with the turmoil in his mind. Now that he has the simple answer that she is different, and that's just how it is, he rejects it. She isn't an other to him. She's not different from you normal children. It's like he perceives that there's some threat that isn't quite defined for him, but once someone bluntly states that it's because she's inhuman, he is something he can either accept or reject. And he just doesn't buy that she's that different. He feels of a kind with her. Realizing this settles his whole episode-long debate, and he's off to the races. Our final part begins with Zero Two being escorted away and Hero running after them. She hears him coming, I think, and knows he's coming after her, but she's been chasing him long enough. She has doubts, and if he is going to overcome them, he's going to have to chase her for a change. Remember, she wasn't there for his conversations with Goto and Ichigo, where he's still resolved to try to pilot with her. Him asking her to go with Mitsuru last time is something they still haven't hashed out between them. This is put-up-or-shut-up territory for Hiro. Now, the detail of the security doors that he showed us last time comes back for its payoff. The barrier that physically contains him to a certain small part of the plantation is exactly like all the other barriers that keep him confined to the life he has now. A caged bird with no partner and no purpose he can fulfill. Before Zero Two, he had resigned himself to staying inside. He was going to give up and go away with Naomi. Now that there's something he wants, and now that he knows he wants it, the barrier becomes something he does want to break through, that he will beat on and rail against. There's something he wants on the other side of the life he has now. Physically in the scene, the security door also heightens the impact of the moment. Since he can't get through, she continues to get further and further away, which just makes him more and more desperate. But since he can't get through, her escort isn't perturbed by him at all, and he gets to lay out his whole spiel uninterrupted. Now, not to go over his spiel line by line or anything, but I think the key points are that he admits to her his fear, but insists that it has nothing to do with her humanity. And she judged him right on this. Remember, we heard his thoughts when they first met, and he found her horns alluring. Before this episode, I don't think her non-humanness had occurred to him to even bring up. So addressing that while still being honest about his fear is one key. The other, I think, is how he says that he realized he never really cared about riding the Franks, he wanted to ride with her. Now she's used his desire to save his friends as a justification and excuse twice, but for all she knows, he doesn't care who he pilots with so long as he gets to pilot or so long as he gets to save his friends. That might indeed be what she took away from the whole debacle with Mitsuru saying that it was her he wanted, along with all the other stuff about how she inspired him, which just supports that idea, is really the other important thing he says. He addresses both of the doubts she's having. What's more, this frantic and kind of desperate plea from him is by far the most emotion he has shown around her. It's no wonder he gets through. Women in general rather like feeling desired, you know? Now, once she steals the gun and flips through the glass, they come face to face. The way she runs up to him and then puts her hands behind her back and tilts her face down is such a perfect mix of uncertainty and enthusiasm. When she points out how embarrassing the things he said were, he has his own moment to blush and kind of look away with uncertainty, even though she's obviously pleased and she wants him to say it all again. Once more, her girlish side comes beaming through, and once again, only Hero seems to bring it out of her. I gotta say, you sell me on their affection here. Whatever else may happen, at this moment, I think these two are the very image of young lovers taking their first uncertain steps. Now the security door gets some final utility as Zero Two takes his hand in the same way we saw before. The message is clear, I think. Hero can't get through the barriers that contain him in his present life by himself. But with Zero Two, he can break free. What's more, the awkward kind of position they run in looks an awful lot like dance positions. But instead of the usual arrangement of the guy leading the girl, Zero Two is the one who leads. Once Hero realizes this and lets it happen, they are able to run and lockstep together. This may foreshadow the idea that Zero Two can get him out of the life he's in, but only if he lets her lead, if he lets her do it her way. Anyway, they successfully get past the guards who don't really know how their guns work, I guess, and they are able to connect. 
Now I mentioned before that they had never shown Zero Two piloting from the inside. It turns out that there isn't something that's different about it. I think they actually just wanted to show her with Hero the first time it comes up. I like that he is still kind of uncertain while she's reassuring. She is kind of the experienced older woman here. This then leads to yet another bit of dialogue that makes piloting parallel sexuality. This dialogue put over two people's first time together would be just as appropriate. You know, I almost feel like we can stop treating this as our interpretation of what the creators mean. Uh, it's hard to believe they mean anything else at this point. Strelizia then rides to the rescue, surprising everyone. They don't know how to react to the idea of hero piloting or to Strelizia showing up again. Ichigo even insists that they can't afford to rely on her. And while she's technically correct in a macro sense, well, they definitely weren't getting this done on their own. I'm not gonna ding Ichigo too hard for this. She's still determined to make their squad a good unit, and she's right that they can't get there if they rely on outside help. But Hiro is right too, that he's a part of them, and presumably they would be a team of 10 if he and Naomi hadn't washed out. Though it's clear she doesn't like it, Ichigo once again is able to put aside her feelings in order to be the leader. Now there's no need to go blow by blow through the fight scene. I will say I do like the use of scale and the unexpected but believable twist that it was a single huge Klaxosaur. It's also interesting that Zero Two seems to know intuitively that they didn't get the core on their first attack. Now the enormous length of the thing presents quite the problem as far as hunting down said core. Ichigo figures out something to try, and the Strelizia team gets called in as the ringer. Now we'll talk about it later, but the moment Zero Two takes to grin maniacally at Ichigo as they go by stands out quite a bit among the otherwise triumphant moment. The rest can only stand back in amazement as Strelizia finds the core and splits the worm down the middle. The silhouette and burning eye of her in that sudden storm of blue blood is very sinister, I think. The threat she poses is palpable. We get a brief moment of Hero panting with exertion after he and Zero Two have successfully uh, found the right spot. Hachi calls the operation over, and he and Nana have an exchange about Zero Two's behavior. Now, despite Zero Two's rule-breaking ways up to this point, Nana is still surprised that she would ignore an order from Papa directly. This means she was behaving differently to pilot with Hero. This wasn't just more of her usual obstinacy. Nana wonders if she wasn't planning this all along. Well, honestly, Nana, since you gave her the heads up that she was being recalled to HQ, you kind of gave her the opportunity to plan something. Getting herself and Hero suited up seems a little more calculated now. And maybe she got what she wanted. As Hachi says, this changes everything. The numbers conclusively prove Code 016's compatibility with Strelizia. The real question about what this means for the future is put out there by Hachi. How will Papa and the others react to this? Zero Two disobeyed them, something she apparently doesn't usually do, but in that process, she may have proven the very thing they wanted to find out. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we'll talk about that in What to Watch For, as it's linked to a lot of things we've brought up before, actually. Finally, we see Plantation 13 begin the kissing maneuver for real that will take it to meet Plantation 26, and we get some final thoughts from Hero. They largely echo what we talked about this episode, about he had resigned himself to his fate until he met Zero Two, and how he may have finally found a pair of wings to call his own. The last part of this is the telling part, though. He says that even if there are double-edged wings that will slowly destroy me, I'll be able to fly one more time. It seems that he has not forgotten the threat that Zero Two poses as a partner. Now, I don't know if it's literal or not, but his statement about being able to fly one more time may mean that he's just content as long as he gets to keep flying. Or it may mean he knows he only literally has one more flight in him with her, as that would be the third time and he won't survive it. So looking at goals next, we had our biggest single episode movement to date. Hero gets progress on both of his goals. For his find a place to belong goal, he gets to assert his place as part of the squad when they show up to save the day. Even if it's with reservation, he's accepted and utilized and he helps them succeed. His position is still up in the air, but this seems like progress towards this goal. For Hero's goal of fly free, well, Hero got to fly even if it's not quite perfect. All his talk about finding wings at the end suggests that he's pretty content with how things have turned out on this front, even though he knows there's still a threat to himself. 
He's still contained in this restrictive world. Uh, he still isn't an official parasite. He still is not free to do as he wills, but this still feels like progress. It's one step on the way to achieving all this, so we'll count it as goal progression. Zero Two also has a fly-free goal. She's still part of the system, sure, but successfully piloting with Hero means one step closer to potentially running away with him, or however this goal for her manifests. She is still a bit inscrutable, and I'm sure a lot is still hidden below the surface, but riding with her darling has been foremost in her motivations for several episodes now, so right now the story is definitely going her way. Now conflict-wise, we may have had some resolutions. On the Ikuno Mitsuru issues, maybe this is solved. It got a lot less attention than I would have suspected before they resumed piloting. It's hard to guess how major or minor these characters will end up being, and they really may have just been a way to complicate Hero and Zero 2's struggles and give them more opportunities for characterization. Since we don't yet know the root of things between them, I'm actually inclined to leave this on the board for now, but we may realize later on that this conflict was completed at this point. Uh, the Ichigo Fallout conflict, I don't think this one's over. She hasn't melted down again, and she's still a capable leader it seems, but she and Hiro have still not talked out what happened between them, and she is still justifiably wary of Zero Two. If they have to keep working together, I think there's still a lot of potential for this to boil over into something that will affect the narrative. Now for the Hiro lost the ability to pilot conflict, well, while we still don't know how he lost the ability, which presupposes that he had it, his being able to pilot conscious with Zero Two and without taking much or maybe any damage, well, I hate to take this off the board without knowing why he lost it in the first place, but we're going to tentatively say that this conflict is over. We do have one new conflict, and that is that Zero Two has been recalled. Now, maybe this is no conflict at all because of the success at the end, but this was the episode-long conflict we started with, and I'm not sure we can say it's over. Her disobedience by itself could cause problems in the future, and the recall may still stand and may inspire some desperate behavior, or even a separation that puts Hero right back where he started. Now in theme, we have several things we've seen before. We'll start with structure mirroring. Uh, we have two real instances here. One is that, yes, we once again end an episode with two people piloting a Franks, and it has some significance to the story. Now the beginning doesn't feature the characters involved like it has before, but it does show the Ape Council coming to the conclusion that they need to recall Zero Two. And the reaction to that order is what sets up the climax of this episode and that piloting. So not exact, but still in the same ballpark. The other mirroring is with the bath scene that I already mentioned. This has a parallel to Hero and Zero Two's first meeting, though the nakedness is reversed. I think it's worth noting that Zero Two, who we've characterized as being a little more wild, a little bit more primal, she has her naked bathing scene in a wild and natural area. Hero, on the other hand, someone who is completely part of the system, may have actually been created and raised in an artificial and sterile environment, he instead has his naked bathing scene in an interior and completely artificial bath. In both cases, the situation that presents itself to them is not allowed to play out and is interrupted by external forces. For piloting as sexuality, I really went over this already in the scenes with Hero's confession and their subsequent success in connecting. We also had a bit of it in Ikuno and Mitsuru's makeup session as well, with Ikuno holding on to her arm contentedly and then having no trouble connecting. The only thing I want to reiterate here is that I think we can stop treating this as an interpretation. It's clearly their intent for the two processes to mirror and recall each other. Our goal going forward is going to be determine what they are wanting to say about sexuality and relationships with this metaphor. Science fiction often allows a storyteller to talk about a subject that is present in their own time, with the alternate setting forcing the audience to approach the subject from an unfamiliar angle, where they have no pre-existing experience or biases. I'd wager there is something the showrunners want to say and explore within human sexuality, and this is going to be their vehicle to do so. We should be asking ourselves what this unfamiliar angle allows us to see or examine on that subject. Lastly, with bird and flight imagery, well, this episode was called Flap Flap, and Hero got to literally and metaphorically fly this time, 
So this is another theme that I don't think we have to pretend is just our interpretation. Like the sexuality theme, we should be asking ourselves which parts of the human experience are touched on with this consistent motif. Now we've been over some already, with the constant linking between hero's progression to a bird learning to fly, and the cage being linked to the control of the society we they live in. Once we get a better look at the past of both the parasites and the wider world, we might be able to explore this a little more deeply. Also, I haven't yet decided if we should include plant analogy or metaphors as part of the same theme. It's obvious both are important to the creators, as tons of things have plant names and designs, and lots of character introspection revolves around birds and flight. But they may end up representing separate ideas over the course of the show. I'm inclined to make them separate, but before I do, I want to point out once again that Strelesia gets its name from the genus of plants that include the Bird of Paradise flower. Whatever potential separate themes or patterns are at work here, it seems likely that both of them are supposed to intersect in Strelesia and whatever she represents to the story, as she is both flower and bird. Now, and what to watch for? So, I said at the end of last part that I would talk more about what Hero's compatibility may have been about. This may retroactively answer some of the questions we originally had, but some of it is actually speculative, so this may actually go in both sections. Uh, it's potentially the only answers we get to things we are watching for, though, so I'm going to lay out what I'm thinking here. I'm now beginning to wonder if bringing Strelesia and Zero Two to Plantation 13 was always about having them judge Hero's aptitude with the two of them. Strelesia was the huge cargo in the original transport plane, and the reason Hero was being given permission to stay on was so that they could run such a test. HQ is aware of Hero, and they name him in their discussions, so it isn't far-fetched that they are responsible for him being allowed to stay after the failure with Naomi. The fact that he and Zero Two sort of teamed up to defeat that original Klaxosaur might have thrown a wrench in that plan, giving them the test case they thought they wanted and concluding that they had the information they sought. When Hero failed in the mock battle, that seemed to be the end of it. It's only Zero Two's desire to stay on that allowed the bit with Mitsuru to ever happen. But that's not what Ape wants at all, just anyone piloting with her or Strelesia, and so the recall order is issued. But now the hero has piloted and stayed conscious, and apparently the numbers are perfect, the original goal of sending them out there may have been met. Although, I do have to wonder, where the heck is the doctor in all this? Anyway, if this is right, then it answers several of these things. The huge cargo is just Strelesia, the trial run was Hero and Zero Two piloting it, the reason Zero Two and Strelesia are at Planetization 13 is answered, and the special permission to stay on for Hero is explained as well. To what end? We don't know, but maybe if all this gets confirmed, we'll discover the reason then. For now, we'll just add that we're watching to see why it was worth the effort, or what the goal was in testing Hero with Strelesia. Now beside all that, there's a few other things to add. I noticed this time, and then I went back and checked the other episodes as well, but the Ape Council never refers to Zero Two as Zero Two. In fact, they almost talk about Strelesia and Zero Two as if they were interchangeable. So I think we should be watching to see if there is something more significant about Zero Two and Strelesia's link than exists for the other pistols, or if there is maybe some reason they don't use the Zero Two designation when referring to her. I've also noticed that while the stamens may move around, it seems the pistols always stay with their franks. And, as we've noted, there are physical resemblances between them as well. Related to this, and I guess this should actually go under the sexuality theme, but the Pistol Franks connection actually makes me wonder about another parallel. Like we've said, the Franks have flower names, and the girls stay with their Franks. Well, flowers have often been used as a metaphor for girl parts, and I wonder if that link is on purpose as well. In actuality, flowers are the parts of plants that turn into fruits after they're fertilized, bearing seeds for the plant in the same way that females in the animal world bear young or lay eggs. If all that is on purpose, what kinds of seeds or young are the Franks supposed to bear? How far does this metaphor go exactly? Well, we're gonna keep watch. The council does refer to someone named the Nines, so we should be watching out to find out who or what that refers to. It occurs to me that the people I've been guessing may be rivals from the opening could theoretically be these Nines characters, though there's only eight of them. If Zero Two is one of them, though, that would take it up to nine. 
Their uniform pattern is actually really similar to hers, but has a few differences, like the buttons and the shoulder pads and the tie size. I don't know what to think there. Maybe they're supposed to be identical, but the opening credits were made from an earlier design or something like that. Either way, we should expect to meet some of them or learn more about them. Uh, we should be watching for more about the special specimen. I said this time that I guess it's either Hero himself or some quality he possesses, but that still wouldn't answer what about the whole thing makes it special. So we'll still have to watch for that, on top of watching for any confirmation that Hero is who they mean. Lastly, I want to watch for why Zero Two gave Ichigo that wicked grin at the end there. Slowing down to emphasize it like that, along with Ichigo's startle reaction, gives me a lot of reason to believe it's going to come back and help inform us about Zero Two. To expand on that idea a little bit, and I guess talking about this here is the best, but what are we supposed to think about Zero Two anyway? I mean, her threat is real, her casual indifference towards the parasite's lives is alarming, and her self-satisfied grinning suggests hidden and possibly diabolical motives. And yet, she has legitimate character moments. She's insecure about her existence as a non-human. She's ready to believe the others see her only as a monster. Her positive reaction to Hero's profession, especially talking about it being embarrassing but wanting to hear it again, is a believably human look for her. And the entire series began with a heartfelt confession from her, a girl with dreams that are very far away. This leaves us with a central character who is both sympathetic and unsympathetic. Just because she is friendly towards Hero and enabling him to chase his goals doesn't mean she can't be an antagonistic force overall or eventually be something of an enemy. And just because she is ostracized for her violence and her mixed blood doesn't mean she'll always be an outsider or always be thought of as a bit of a monster. Whenever she smiles like this or like this, I want to believe the best of her. And whenever she smiles like this or like this, I want to brace for the worst of her. Lover or hater, at this point, you at least can't ignore her. She has basically driven the plot overall. She's the biggest X factor and disruptor of the status quo. I don't know exactly what to expect from her, but not because I don't know anything about her. That is a fantastic place for a character to be. Watching to see what she does and why she does it is the thing to watch for in the series right now. Frankly, I find that kind of awesome. Lastly, speculation. So there's some stuff from the list that might be a wash and might just be timed wrong. Hero hasn't confronted Zero Two about damaging her partners, and the other parasites haven't been cool toward her, but these things are still things that could happen, and soon. Likewise, neither Mitsuru nor Ikuno's past has been explored, and maybe with them piloting again, we're leaving that entire subplot behind, but we don't know that yet either. I did predict that Mitsuru would be out of commission, but not dead. I thought he'd be out of commission longer. And because he wasn't, we can probably scratch out this idea that maybe Ikuno and Hiro would pilot together. Maybe some pilot shuffling will still happen, but it will no longer be for the reason I thought, so we will just strike that out. As to what new things to speculate, uh, we should talk about where the series is right now. I joked about the series being over at the beginning, but truthfully, a lot of lingering challenges were overcome in those last 10 minutes. We ended with success, and Hiro is riding high, this episode actually sets up a potential disaster. In the first part, Ichigo presented Hiro with the rumor about how no stamen survives three rides with Zero Two, and, having said her piece, she says she won't stand in his way again. At the time, it looks like it's not going to matter anyway, as Hiro will never get a second piloting session, let alone a third, after the orders to pull Zero Two out. We now know that he does get that second session, but this threat to Hero seems really far away by the end, with the overwhelming success of their rescue efforts and Hachi's statements about his compatibility with Strelizia. But here's what we have now. The next time Hero and Zero Two pilot together will be Hero's third time. There's no way he'll be talked out of it after he's exulting in success here at the end, getting to finally spread his wings. Zero Two has shown she'll go to some really great lengths to pilot with him, and then Ichigo has promised not to stand in the way of his decision. This is perfectly set for Hiro to waltz into his third time piloting with no resistance, no worries, no expectations for anything but success, which seems like the ideal setup for disaster. This seems especially likely with how neatly resolved a lot of things appear by the end. In fact, next episode seems like the perfect time to drop a so-called filler episode, 
allowing us to linger in this new status quo for a moment while Plantation 13 kind of rumbles towards 26. Granted, viewers have a disproportionate amount of hate for what they perceive as filler, so maybe they will forego that to keep up the momentum the show has gained. Even if they don't do something fillerish, this would be a logical place to take a breather and see what this new normal is all about before throwing more conflict at it. And what better way to break up a new status quo than bringing a known threat back to the forefront? Now, I am not speculating that we will have a filler episode next, followed by a hero piloting and then dying. But I do want to point out that this is a good time to advance characterizations and setting details rather than plot. And I want to state that the ominous third time with Zero Two is due up next. It may be that Zero Two is still pulled out of here, and we go several episodes before it comes up again, allowing them to surprise us with it. Or, whenever it does happen, nothing bad comes of it, and that launches an explanation about what makes Hero special. I don't think he'll just be dead and out of the story, unless for some reason they are separated for a very long time, and it becomes some desperate way to save everyone else by sacrificing himself. But any of these things could happen inside the story we know so far. Which brings me to the one thing I do want to speculate. I think the first hints about my original speculation, that the basic premise does not represent the whole, uh, will start to show up soon. If next episode isn't filler or filler light, then we might get our first hints then. Uh, otherwise, I would guess the episode after. After the large amount of resolution at the end of today's episode, I think we can safely call the bewilderment phase over, and it will soon be time to yank audience expectations in a different direction. Oh, I lied. I will go ahead and add this since I brought it up. I think I'll go ahead and guess that the people I've been calling the Rivals will end up being the Nines, and that Zero Two is one of them. I don't know why the minor uniform discrepancy, but an elite group having an odd number like Nine would make more sense if the partner killer is one of them, making the tenth spot a constantly rotating one. That would also explain why there are people who want to partner up with her despite the risk. It would put them into elite company. And if they survive and prove themselves, maybe one day they get to be referred to as the Tens instead. It's an iffy speculation, I'll admit, uh, but I did bring it up earlier, so I guess I'll go ahead and throw in on it. Okay then, that's it. Next time, will we have filler, or thriller, or more partner killer? Or Theta is wrong about everything and also stupid. Actually, more than one of those could be true. Find out which it is next week. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.